So I hope those of you who were talking survived the exercise well. Is it okay? And then, you know, a little shopping therapy always helps to restore balance. So that's really why we provide the tables in the lobby. Someone asked a Zen master one time, what is the value of a lifetime of practice? And he replied, an appropriate response. And when I first heard that, I was really disappointed. (laughs) Because for me, that was very undramatic for a Zen master. I thought for a Zen master, the value of a lifetime of practice is that when you come to the moment of death, you sit up spontaneously in full lotus, you utter a haiku that expresses your full Dharma realization that has never been heard before, and then you pass away, still seated in full lotus. I thought that would be an appropriate response. But the value of a lifetime of practice being an appropriate response kind of mystified me until I started thinking about it more, and I really uh, appreciated what a profound answer it was. Because what it asks of us is that in every moment of life, when we respond, we do that in an appropriate way. So this is not only the value, but it's the guideline for a lifetime of practice. How do we do that? One of the beautiful things about the four Brahma-viharas that we've been practicing and their associated states of near and far enemy is that it gives us this really kind of comprehensive roadmap to look at the way we respond to life. And life is always changing. You know, the essence of it is that it's constantly hitting us with pleasant experiences and unpleasant experiences and some kind of neutral experiences in the middle. But it's this alternation of pleasant and unpleasant that kind of keeps us off balance. And we develop these habits of mind in in relation to those changing conditions. So I want to take a look at these um, states, Brahma-viharas, near and far enemies, in a little different lineup, just slicing it a little different way, to say that the four Brahma-viharas that we've been working with, loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity show us an awakened response. You could say the response from uh, an enlightened mind, or you could say our own mind when it's free and balanced. So as we've been able to touch these places, we know that these responses are in us. We know that in our human capacity, each of us has these responses as potentials. And then the practice is to bring them out more and more and more, even as painful and pleasant situations meet us. But the near and far enemies give us another description of how we could also be responding. So we look at the list of the near enemies, and they are liking with attachment, grief or despair, depression, exuberance, or you might say over-exuberance, or indifference. So think about that list. Liking with attachment, despair or depression, over-exuberance, and indifference. Now these aren't deadly sins, are they? These near enemies are not like overwhelming sources of our greatest dukkha. These are just kind of the normal way that in our neurosis, we meet things. I think the near enemies are just kind of the normal neurotic 
response of humans to life. Nothing really that extraordinary about them. But they're all based on um, some unclarity, unwisdom, unfreedom, lack of understanding in the mind. Then the far enemies will go through that list. Hatred, cruelty, envy, and agitation. Now we're getting into serious terrain. These are the states that provoke a lot of suffering in our own lives and in the world. And of course we see how these are potential within us too. We've seen and felt and experienced these in our lives also. So we have the set of the awakened responses, the sort of normal neurotic responses, and then we have the heavy kinds of suffering. And anytime we're in relation, we can see where on this map of 12 we're coming from. And it kind of gives us an idea of the quality of our heart and mind at that point. So, I mean, you can think of it like reacting to the stock market. For those of you who've put any money in the stock market and equities and funds and so on over the last 10 years, you've had the experience to, to have some of these occasions for these things to arise. The stock market goes up, we get elated. We get exuberant. We get over-exuberant. The stock market goes down, unpleasant thing happens, we get depressed. And the stock market here is just a symbol for all the things in our life that go up and down, which they do all the time. So the Buddha said we go up and down with these changing conditions because we haven't really understood. We haven't really understood that they're all impermanent. He said that's what we lose track of. So we get swung into highs and lows not realizing that each of these changing conditions is going to change again. So as wisdom arises and we get less moved by the passing show, then we can abide more in this place of equanimity or balance of mind. It's not so thrown either into the neurotic functioning or the heavy suffering as the changes of life present. But we find the possibility to go more and more into this free or awakened kind of relation to life. I think the beauty of of this whole map, the map of the twelve, is that as we go back into life, daily life, we're in a relational setting. As opposed to here, which is mostly inner and kind of solitary, back in life we're relating all the time to people and events and changing situations. And we can use this map to kind of uh, look at how our heart is responding. What's skillful, what's really suffering, what's just a little bit off. As we carry out this investigation, what happens is we start tuning into the movements of our heart and the hearts of others. And we start to see what hurts and what leads to happiness, both for ourselves and others. This exploration brings a couple of, um, I would say, profound benefits that take a while to develop, but they, they are deep. One is that we become more and more tender with ourselves and with others. We get more sensitive. As you tune into the impact in the heart, 
you start to feel concern, care, love, compassion, happiness. So we tenderize the heart by touching the play of life in ourselves and others. This is from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. It is as if we had a pimple on our body that was very sore, so sore that we do not want to rub it or scratch it. During our shower, we do not want to rub too much soap over it because it hurts. That sore spot on our body is an analogy for tenderness. Why? Because even in the midst of aggression, insensitivity, or laziness in our life, we always have a soft spot, some point we can cultivate. A more vivid analogy might be of an open wound, which is always there. That open wound is usually very inconvenient and problematic. We would like to be tough. We would like to come on strong. But there will always be a sore spot. At least we are accessible somewhere. So we are not completely covered with a suit of armor all the time. What a relief. This quotation really points to this tenderness as also being a kind of vulnerability. It's where we feel life, but it's also where life touches us. And we realize that our sensitivity means that we're vulnerable all the time because at any moment, anything can happen. This really came home to us with the experience of a friend of ours. He was, um, he's a Dharma practitioner and he was having some uh, practice time and vacation time in Asia a few years ago. And he was out on the beach in the morning, nice southern tropical beach, doing some exercises, enjoying the beautiful view of the ocean, when all of a sudden he saw a wave that was a little too big. And he happened to be out there on the beach on December 26, 2004. And this wave that was a little too big came up and knocked him over. And he said, it wasn't too scary, but when it went back out, there was this really unusual trough. It was much deeper on the outflow than it should ever be, and that concerned him. So he immediately went to grab his partner, who was still sleeping, and brought her out of the bungalow, where actually she was sleeping under a big chest of drawers that, if anything happened, could have fallen over and crushed her. Took her by the hand, and they climbed up on this concrete wall that was about four feet tall, And then he hung on to a palm tree that was growing beside the wall, and she hung on to him. And you probably know the next chapter. The bigger wave came. The second wave of that tsunami in 2004 came, and it was the second wave that was the the killer. So that wave killed tens of thousands of people on that day. Uh, My friend was in southern India, It hit there, it hit in Sri Lanka with devastating impact, it hit in Thailand, and it hit in Burma. So the huge wave came, my friend was holding on to the palm tree, and his partner was holding on to him, and they were okay. The wave passed up, and then it passed back, and they were still standing on that wall. So he survived. And he was uh, on a beach near Madras, in, uh, in southern India. One time when the practice of non-clinging was not advisable. <laughs> but by holding on, they were, they were both okay. But who would know? You wake up, 
It's a beautiful beach. It's a sunny morning. Who knows what's going to happen? So this can happen to any of us. Any of us could walk into a doctor's office the next time we have to go and find out that we have a disease that uh, is projected to be terminal. This could always happen to us. So as human beings, this vulnerability and unknowing is just part of our life's condition. I was teaching at IMS a few years ago, and a young man was on the three-month course. Uh, I was teaching the first half. And he was very uh, inspired by the Dharma and had a, had a great love for the practice. And his intention was, after the retreat, to go to Asia, to ordain as a monk, and just to put himself in a long-term practice situation. He just felt a deep calling to be in silent retreat for a long, long time. And we talked a lot during the retreat, and then I kept in touch with him after, and was very supportive of his plans, because he was someone I thought would do well in the robes and would do well in Asia. And as we kept discussing, uh, he told me that he had acquired some mysterious illness, and it affected his digestion in such a way that uh, he couldn't eat without a great deal of pain. And so going to Asia with an abdominal problem to begin with, not recommended. Because mostly you go there well and you come back with an abdominal problem. (laughs) So this actually became quite severe. He could not find a diet that kept him from almost doubling up in pain after every meal. So he couldn't go to Asia. He couldn't ordain. He couldn't really go into retreat because he had to look after his health. He had a hard time keeping a full-time job to support himself because of the pain from his illness. And although he visited lots of specialists, the doctors weren't able to diagnose what he had. Young, healthy, bright, full of love for the Dharma, all the good intentions, and then this really curious illness that blocked his, his journey and his good intention. And we never know if that might happen for us too. So fortunately, keeping in touch over the years, his illness is still there to some extent, but he's learned how to work with it a lot better and moderate his diet, and he's gotten some medical treatment. And so he's able to to practice again, but he's not quite in, in shape for Asia yet. So moving along with progress, still has a love for the for the Dharma, but not quite able to fulfill that original vision yet. So we never know what's going to happen and how we're going to respond. We can't always control that. But as we start to tune into this, it awakens our compassion for ourselves and one another because we're all in the same boat, the same uh, place of vulnerability. This is from Bob Dylan from his memoirs. My grandma was filled with nobility and goodness told me once that happiness isn't on the road to anywhere, that happiness is the road, had also instructed me to be kind because everyone you'll ever meet is fighting a hard battle. So as we open up to this situation, our human situation and the possibilities of of difficulty, we start to develop this connection to life that, that comes from a different place. Sally told a whale story the other night about the video, the whale that had gotten tangled up in the fishing net, and she also mentioned one that happened off our coast 
near the Farallon Islands near San Francisco. And I just wanted to read you a little bit from that account. So in this one, the whale had gotten tangled up in uh, crab pots. And these are fishing lines with heavy pots that dangle off the end. And there were about four lines going through that each weighed close to 1,000 pounds, weighing the whale down. It was a female humpback, about 50 feet long. So the Marine Mammal Center came out with a boat of divers to try to rescue her, to cut the, to cut the cords um, that were around her. And this is an account from the divers. The whale floated passively in the water the whole time, giving off a strange kind of vibration. One diver worked around the whale's face, and this is his quote. When I was cutting the line going through the mouth, her eye was there winking at me, watching me. He said, it was an epic moment of my life. Could you imagine working on the whale right next to her eye? But he was there for about an hour, cutting through that line. And the other divers were working all around her too. When the whale realized she was free... She began swimming around in circles in apparent joy, according to the rescuers. She then swam up to each diver, nuzzled him, and then swam to the next one. It felt to me like she was thanking us, knowing that she was free and that we had helped her, one of the divers said. She stopped about a foot away from me, pushed me around a little bit, and had some fun. She, she seemed kind of affectionate, like a dog that's happy to see you. I never felt threatened. It was an amazing, unbelievable experience. Can you imagine the kind of connection that they would have been feeling with her at that point? That is tenderness. That's beauty. These connections that happen, and I'm sure you've all felt them over this week, to the people in your meditations, to one another, to the animals who are here on the land are very special. And we we shouldn't just gloss over them because there's a, a kind of deep meaning here. And what these connections do when we kind of feel ourselves in another's shoe or we can understand what another person is going through, it takes away a little bit of our sense of isolation. We've been teaching for some years uh, retreats for scientists, both here at Spirit Rock and at at IMS in Massachusetts, because uh, neuroscience especially has gotten so connected to the Dharma. And this didn't happen by accident. Uh, Some neuroscientists were meditators. They became close to the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama has a great appreciation for science. And he personally... Uh, enthusiastically endorsed these gatherings that would happen every year of uh, meditators, a lot from uh, Asia, and scientists in the West because he felt there was a lot of potential there. So these retreats grew out of that because we felt that it would be good if the scientists had a first-person experience of what they were investigating. So if they understood what meditation was about, they could devise the research better, ask more interesting questions, and really understand what the meditators were going through. So the scientists have a name to sell this project to their superiors. Coming on a retreat like this is not just a meditation retreat, it's called first-person research. (laughs) So there was a lot of first-person research going on at these scientific retreats, and it was a wonderful exchange 
And then they got to talk with each other toward the end. Well, on one of these retreats, one of the scientists said something very interesting. There are so many different research projects, and I can't remember which one this came from. But they said that the recent research they're, they're doing shows that maybe the deepest source of people's unhappiness is a sense of isolation. And this isolation happens on a lot of levels. For one thing, in our, in our country today, the community has broken down. The, the nuclear family is kind of shaky, and the extended family isn't absent, and the wider community is often not there at all for people. So we grow up in the West without a sense of a lot of connection, which is very different than established societies in Asia, for example. So this sense of isolation manifests in us in a way that um, we think we're really unusual. We sort of don't have enough close extended contacts to see how normal we are. We're all actually really normal, but we don't know that. And so we each just kind of grow up in our little cylinder of personality and we think we're strange, but we're not. We're all so much alike. So the Brahma Viharas start to show us this kind of um, interconnection. And as we learn it through this practice, it breaks down this sense of being different. In a way, this is the, the fate of too much emphasis on the individual. You know, Western cultures put so much emphasis on individual rights, whereas a lot of Asian cultures put a lot of emphasis on uh, social cohesion and sacrificing some individual choice in order to align with the community. And here we've become very individualistic, over-individualistic, and it's bred this kind of um, isolation. Um, So in this individualism, part of what happens is we, we define ourselves by how we're, how we're individual or unique. So as we grow up, we tell ourselves all kinds of stories about how we're different from other people. You know, I'm different because I have uh, more suffering or I was more wounded when I was a child. Or I'm different because I'm the best athlete in my school or I got the highest grades on my SAT. So in both directions, either we're better than or we're not as good as others. And we keep telling ourselves these stories. It's kind of a Western um, emphasis. So every time we tell ourselves these stories, we believe in it a little bit more and that isolates isolates us a little bit more. And what we forget to tell ourselves, the stories we forget to tell ourselves are how much we're like everybody else. The ego, the self-sense, doesn't focus on connection. It focuses on separation. And so we create that through these stories of our self-image. And in telling them over and over again, we get to think we're way out in a corner somewhere, an isolated corner, when we're not. Because we have at least as many similarities as we do differences. And I'll talk about that in a bit. So I want to talk about how the Brahma-viharas and, and insight both go to connect us back up again. So there, there are a few ways this happens, so I want to talk about a few of them. There's this beautiful image from um, the Avatamsaka Sutra, a Mahayana Sutra that was the basis for um, Huayen Buddhism and Dzogchen and Mahamudra, which is called the Jewel Net of Indra. 
And you've probably heard of it before. This is where it comes from. So the image is the universe is a net. And you can kind of imagine a rope net that spans all of space. And at every intersection of the two cross pieces, there's a gem. So the whole universe is like this rope net, and then there's a, a gem everywhere the, the two pieces intersect. So that's what the net is made of. So the gems are all different. You know, there are crystals, there are diamonds, there are rubies, there are emeralds, there are sapphires. They have different cuts and different weights and different facets, but every one is a gem, and every gem is translucent. So that means when you look in one gem, it picks up all the other gems in the universe. So each gem reflects all the other gems. They're contained within it. So this is a metaphor for sentient beings. Each gem represents a sentient being. We're different from one another, but we're also translucent. Things shine into us and through us. And if you open up each individual, what you get is all the rest of us. Right? Your experience right now is composed of everyone else in this meditation room. That can only happen because you're basically empty. That's how you can fill up with all the rest of us. But your experience in this moment is of everyone else. And that's the experience for each of us. So you can kind of feel how this gem operates. We're open enough to hold everything around us. So you can see how we, inter- we interpenetrate each other. So I'm part of your experience right now as you listen, and you're part of my experience as I speak. So you're part of me, and I'm part of you. And this is happening all the time. But we sort of forget this, and we put up this fiction that says, this is my wall, you're in your wall, you know, we're really entirely different. We're not entirely different. We make up each other. And in that making up, we transmit our minds to one another. Mind states are contagious. States of being are contagious from one to another. We inherit things from our parents. We pass things on to our kids, our friends, etc. This is why the Buddha said that one of the most vital factors in walking the path was association with the wise. Because when we're around people who are wise and developing, we pick up those qualities and we align our lives with those good qualities. So this is one way that we're very deeply uh, interconnected, that we are part of each other's reality. And we touch each other and we affect each other in that way. But the Brahma Viharas open up another way that we're um, interconnected. And I'd like to read just a little bit of this poem called Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye, a Palestinian-American poet. A lot of you have probably heard this, so I won't read the whole thing. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. I really like this line, until you see the size of the cloth. 
The size of the cloth of sorrow is the size of all life, all human life, all animal life, all sentient life is involved with sorrow. So this is one of the deep threads that we see in the Brahmaviharas that connects us. We all have sorrows and we all have joys. And kindness comes out of a recognition of that. The Buddha said that metta is like a gentle rain that falls everywhere without discriminating. Falls on all beings similarly. So in this way, it's immeasurable. It's boundless. It can apply to everyone. And one of the reasons, he said, had to do with our deep relationships to one another. Now, I'm going to read a passage from the Buddha that's based on the concept of rebirth. You may or may not believe in this, so I'm only offering it for your consideration. But the Buddha said that he could see with his concentrated powers the um, extent of lives that we have all gone through. And he said, they're countless. He said he recollected at one point 100,000 of his own past lives. So he said, if you look back at all the lives that we have lived, it's not easy to find any being who has not been at some point or another your mother or your father or your sister or your brother or your son or your daughter. You may or may not believe in that teaching, but what if that was true? What if you could look around this room and know that everybody here and we all have some kind of bond anyway, some kind of shared interest, everybody here had been an intimate family member at some time in the past. You might be looking at your mother. You might be looking at your son. How would that feel? It might depend how you feel about your family of origin. But... (laughs) It would sure make us feel more connected and more intimate in some way. And so we kind of understand these lines from the Metta Sutta that we've been chanting. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. There was a nice story that reminded me of this passage Um, Jack Kornfield is the main founder of Spirit Rock and raised a daughter in this town of Woodacre named Caroline. And Caroline is now about 25, I think, and she's in law school at Berkeley planning to become a human rights lawyer, a lovely uh, woman. So Caroline was driving back from Berkeley to Woodacre one day, and she was driving along Sir Francis Drake by the ferry terminal where you catch the ferry from Larkspur into San Francisco, and it's a big road. It's three lanes in each direction. So she got near the traffic light by the ferry terminal, and the traffic started really slowing down. And it was odd because it wasn't rush hour particularly. There was no reason. And it was just inching along, and as she got up to where it was slowest, she saw what was happening. A mother duck was trying to cross the three lanes of traffic. So cars were stopping and swerving around her and trying to you know, go on their way, because in Marin, nobody wants to be five minutes late for dinner, for gosh sake. So they were still moving, and the mother duck was kind of going in between, and behind her were six little ducklings. So Caroline and her friend got up to this point and said, this is no good. She stopped the car and blocked her lane, 
And they both got out and slowed down and stopped the cars next to them. And that gave the mother a clear path to walk to the median and hop up. And the six little ducklings walked to the median, but they couldn't hop up. So Caroline goes over and scoops each of them up and puts them on the median. Problem solved, right? No. Three more lanes to get to the water. So cars are slowing down now on the other side, and people are honking and shouting, you know, get moving, what's going on? So Caroline and her friend go over and stop that line of traffic. And then they let the mother duck and six ducklings walk across three more lanes, and then they have a clear shot to the bay. I thought that was a great gesture. You know, I love that. Just stop, you guys. We're going to let these ducks go across. And so that's kind of protecting as one would protect one on, one's only child, cherishing all living beings like that. That was beautiful. Then there's this um, really lovely quality that's talked of in Buddhist practice that grows out of this uh, universal love and also universal compassion. And I want to lead up to it uh, little by little. When we have this feeling of metta for all beings, as Sally led us in this morning in a lot of lovely imagery, when we have that feeling of metta for all beings, we want all beings to be happy, don't we? I hope you could touch that possibility. Any being that we can imagine, we want them to be happy. And as compassion can be extended in the same way, we don't want them to suffer. This is love and compassion together. We want them to be happy and we don't want them to suffer. What's the best way that we can affect that? You know, we can't control the outcome right now, but what's the best way we can affect that? In other words, if you really wanted someone you cared about to be as happy as possible and really not suffering, what would you want them to do? Wouldn't you want them to wake up and become inwardly free? Isn't that the best security for happiness and release from suffering? This complete inner peace and freedom? From the Buddhist point of view, it is the best way to help someone attain happiness and come out of suffering. So if our goal is to help all beings become free, What's the best way for us to affect that? Is it to set up a scholarship fund for Spirit Rock? Or would it be to practice ourselves so that we became free and understood the path out of suffering and toward true happiness? So that's the thinking in the Buddhist camp anyway. That if we can attain our own freedom, then we're in the best situation to help all other beings come out of suffering and into genuine happiness. This motivation to free ourselves in order to be of greatest benefit to all beings is called bodhicitta. And this, these are two words. Bodhi means awakening. Citta means consciousness, mind, or heart. So a nice translation of this is awakening heart. The awakening heart when we have this aspiration to free ourselves so we can best help 
others achieve happiness and a release from suffering. This can become a motivation in our practice that we reflect on and strengthen and restate to ourselves again and again. And it's really just an outgrowth of unlimited love and compassion. It's kind of like the most pragmatic approach to activate our love and compassion for others. So this is something that's uh, highly recommended in a lot of schools of Buddhist practice to reflect on your wish to help others in this way, to become free ourselves as a best, the best way to help others become free. And this wish then forms the foundation for the bodhisattva path and the bodhisattva vow. So it's really a statement that I want to become free so that I can help all beings become free. And that can become a very important direction in our practice. It's a beautiful practice because it will sustain us all the way through. If we have a more limited aspiration, we might give up you know, before the end. But this one would sustain us all the way through. So um, I say something usually at the start of every sit that reminds me of this aspiration. Is it something that I would like to um, accomplish? So at the start of sits, I say something like, may I come to awakening in order to benefit all beings? And that may sound a little grandiose, but it's just putting our little bit in to the stream. So even the Dalai Lama says he has a hard time really making this a big practice. So it may not appear like a big, a big burning bonfire right now, but even a little candle flame is good. A little suggestion of this. The Dalai Lama says, I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. So this is one way that we can feel that connection and, and use that connection as a motivation for ourselves. Loving kindness is also, then the connection of it, is also the source of ethical conduct. When we took the five precepts at the beginning of the retreat, that's really founded in loving kindness and compassion. We don't want others to be hurt by our actions. We want them to be safe in our presence. So the Buddha said when we activate that intention, that care with our conduct, we are giving all the beings around us the gift of fearlessness. You know how it feels when you're around somebody who's really safe in their actions, who's really careful? They create a kind of atmosphere where people feel safe around them. And when you feel safe, then you can flower. This can be refined, you know, a long way. So a few years ago, Oprah Winfrey was interviewing the Dalai Lama. And I have a lot of appreciation for Oprah and the way she takes brilliant spiritual teachings and offers them to a wide audience. She has taken people like the Dalai Lama, um, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, and James Barras and introduced them to a very wide readership. James's class attendance like doubled after 
after his appearance in Oprah. So she was interviewing the Dalai Lama, and uh, she started off by asking him, have you ever had to forgive yourself for anything? She was kind of asking him about his conduct and how he felt about that. The Dalai Lama replied, small incidents like accidentally killing an insect. Killing an insect, Oprah said. Okay. The Dalai Lama continued, my attitude toward mosquitoes is not very favorable. (laughs) Not very peaceful. Bed bugs also. And that's it? Oprah couldn't quite believe what she was hearing. In your lifetime, that's what you have to forgive yourself for? (laughs) Small mistakes every day, maybe, the Dalai Lama said evenly, but major mistakes, it seems, no. No major mistakes, Oprah repeated. She fell silent and looked out the window. There was awe in her voice when she finally continued. You have nothing in life that you have regrets about. That's a great life to have no regrets. Regarding service to Tibet, the Dalai Lama said, service to Buddhism, service to humanity, I have done as much as I can. Regarding my own spiritual practice, when I share my experiences with more advanced meditators, even those who have spent years in the mountains practicing single-pointedness of mind, I don't lag too far behind. And of course, part of that beauty of mind and that clarity and stillness and peace is because of his care with his conduct that lets him enjoy a lack of uh, guilt or remorse or confusion that lets his mind settle. So he's been doing this a little longer than us. We're probably about 14 lifetimes behind at this point, (laughs) but we'll, we'll catch up. We just have to keep going. Loving-kindness is also the source of this quality of generosity. Kamala talked this afternoon about the practice of generosity and central role in um, the Buddha's teachings. Generosity is founded on this sense of empathy, that we care about others. There are a lot of things going on in the world these days that are very discouraging. You know, you read a news report, you read a newspaper. Uh, It hasn't gotten a lot better in the last week. So uh, it's easy to have a pessimistic view of the world today, but there are also a lot of beautiful things going on that don't make the papers. Paul Hawkins, I think second most recent book, I'm going to read the title. It's called Blessed Unrest, How the Largest Movement in the World Came into Being and Why No One Saw It Coming. And what he talks about are all the nonprofits and non-governmental organizations and individual foundations that have been just set up out of individuals caring whose mission is to promote you know, health or justice or uh, education, general welfare for people all around the world. So there is this huge movement that's going on in small groups and large groups. You, know, you could take the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which has an endowment of something like $50 billion right now. Or you can take a group smaller to home. Hawken went out and did the research, and he counted up about a million of these groups that he could locate and identify. 
So this is beautiful. You know, almost everywhere you turn, you hear stories like this. Dr. Paul Farmer in Haiti. Um, The uh, work that uh, Greg Mortensen has done in uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, even though it's come under some criticism, a lot of good has been done. And in our own community, I have three separate or four separate friends who are doing work in Burma like this. So um, Kamala and Steve have a schools project in Burma. And every year they take in at least $100,000 to build schools. And in Burma, you can build one school with $25,000. So they've been doing this for a few years. So they probably built something like 12 to 15, 20, 20 schools in Burma that wouldn't have been there because the government's not putting that money out. But once a school is built, the government will provide a teacher. Um, Another friend has been going in every year just collecting donations by an email list and um, last year went in with $60,000 to bring relief to uh, villagers that were affected by the cyclone and also to help nunneries that don't get as much support as the big monasteries. So there's this very small uh, nunnery that she visits and supports two uh, nuns who were planning to go into retreat in long-term practice when the cyclone hit the same tsunami in Burma. Um, a lot of orphans uh, came out of that because the adults were killed. And all of a sudden, there were these 20 young girls who had been orphaned from that area. So these two sisters put aside their retreat plans and decided that what they really needed to do was to create a little nunnery where they would raise these 20 girls. Of course they didn't have the money to do that, but they just took on gaining resources to have these girls fed and clothed and educated. And they were living in very ramshackle conditions with thatch roofs that were leaking and you know, like 10 girls jammed into a room about 6 feet by 10 feet for sleeping. So Carol and her friends came along, identified this nunnery, and have been steadily bringing more resources, enabling them to bring, to build bigger buildings, provide better facilities for the classrooms, books, robes. So you walk in, and there are these 20 little nunlets with their shaved heads and pink robes who are just so adorable, getting support because people care. Another of our friends, Hal Nathan, used to be on the board here at Spirit Rock. Sally is currently president of the Spirit Rock board. And before her, Hal was was president of the board. So Hal's a very valued Sangha member, has a foundation called the Foundation for the People of Burma, and annually gathers about $6 million to take into Burma to provide health care, mostly in rural areas where no health services would be available if he wasn't doing it. So we see this all over. People are getting inspired and just out of their own sense of loving kindness and compassion, taking on these projects and offering to people who really, really need it. So this is one of the most encouraging things that I see happening in the world today. And through all of this, you know, it's all supported by their care. This is a quote from Alice Walker, the author of The Color Purple. 
As I get older, I realize the thing that I value the most is good-heartedness. And so we start to feel that. We start to look for that. We start to see how it's manifesting in the world. We start to have that value. So this is Trungpa Rinpoche again, continuing on from this um, quote about the sore spot. There's also an inner wound called Tathagatagarbha or Buddha nature. This is like a heart that has been sliced and bruised with wisdom and compassion. When the external wound and the internal wound begin to meet and to communicate, then we begin to realize that our whole being is made out of one complete sore spot altogether. That is called bodhisattva fever. (laughs) That vulnerability is compassion. We really have no way to defend ourselves anymore. But what's beautiful is that as the heart has opened up in that way, it's gained in strength. It's not that opening up the heart makes us weaker, it makes us stronger. So again, a story about the Dalai Lama. He plays on a very big stage. You know, he plays on the stage of um, global leadership in the spiritual dimension and it has been for years in the political dimension, bearing the weight of responsibility for Tibet on his shoulders. So he was here in this hall several years ago in a meeting with about 220 Buddhist teachers. And the format was that people would make presentations to him and then ask for his response. And I don't think it was quite the best format, but it was a format we used. So one person would present, then another person would present, then another person would present, and then say, Your Holiness, what do you think about all that? And at one point I remember he just said, Oh, nothing left up here. First person present, I had something to say, but now that's gone. I don't remember anything. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> you, you, just, you just laugh about it. You're just so straightforward about it. But um, some of the presenters were rather direct, or I would say even a little um, cheeky with him. So one of the presenters uh, wanted to ask the Dalai Lama about the popularization of Buddhism that was going on in our culture. And I'm sure you can see there are things like there's a perfume called samsara. (laughs) Resorts will advertise with taglines like, in two days here you'll be in nirvana. Now this is beginning to happen. It's getting kind of even commercialized. So this person mentioned all this popularization that's going on and he said, and you, your holiness, are the biggest popularizer of them all there's a risk that Buddhism is going to become trivialized and commercialized through this. So what do you think about this? So the Dalai Lama was just quiet for a minute while he he reflected on it. And then he said, some people you see, they call me living Buddha. Other people call me God King. He said, no, I am not. I'm just a simple Buddhist monk. But others call me counter-revolutionary. They call me wolf in monk's clothing. But you see, I look back at my own intention. If my intention is sincere, then that's what is important. How I'm perceived is up to others. I don't care. (laughs) I thought that was beautiful. But you know, it takes a strong heart not to care. You're being attacked on the front page of the New York Times and called a wolf in monk's clothing. 
He says, I don't care. I look at my own intention. So that's a strong heart. Okay, one other story about a strong heart. Metta in the face of uh, fear or anger. Um, it's said that when the mind gets very spacious with metta and, with, and when metta is strong, anger can't stick in it. It said the way if you take a bucket of paint and you throw it through space, the way it doesn't stick in space is the way anger doesn't stick in the mind of metta. There's no place for it to grab. Mahagosananda is a Cam- was a Cambodian monk. He died a few years ago. And when the Khmer Rouge took over Cambodia, he was living in Thailand. He'd gone there to practice years earlier. He was practicing with Ajahn Damodaro in southern Thailand. And so while the genocide was going on there in which most of the monks and nuns were killed, there had been one to two million monks and nuns in Cambodia before the Khmer Rouge, and there were hardly any. There were like 60,000 afterwards. While all that was happening, Mahagosananda was living, in, uh, was living in Thailand. He lost something like 17 family members in the genocide, and of course many friends who, had, who he had been in the robes with before. Then when um, the political system changed, I think the Vietnamese uh, invaded and the Khmer Rouge were pushed out of power, it became safe to live in uh, camps, refugee camps, along the border with Thailand. Safer. And at that point, Mahagosananda moved into the refugee camps to give some Buddhist support and teaching and some kind of solace to his uh, people, the country people. While he was living there, he began to teach what he understood would be needed for the healing of his country. He had a lot of grounds for anger. He'd lost his sangha. He'd lost almost all his family members. But that didn't change his attitude in one way. So he started holding large gatherings on um, the holy days and tens of thousands of the refugees would come and gather to hear his talk on the Dhamma because there weren't so many monks or nuns left anymore. And what he had them do, he printed up uh, brochures and handed them out and had them chant a passage from the Dhammapada, classic Buddhist text. And the passage is the one, it's fairly famous, that says, hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred only ceases through love. This is an ancient and eternal law. So he was preaching nonviolence, love, compassion, and reconciliation. And he was attracting a lot of interest and a lot of followers. Well, this threatened the Khmer Rouge's power because they were also in the camps and trying to wield what power they had. So there began to be threats against Mahagosananda's life. And his supporters became very concerned and said, look, we want you to stay. We want you to survive. Uh, he, He became, about this point in time, the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism because he was the most senior uh, monk left. We don't want to lose you. You're too important for your country. So look, take some money, get a, go to um, the capital, Phnom Penh, get a flight to Paris, and you'll be safe there. The Khmer Rouge won't get you in Paris. So Mahagosananda took the money, got on a train, was away for about a week, 
When he came back, his friend said, you're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be in Paris. And what he had done with the money is he had printed up like 50,000 more brochures <laughs> that had the chant, hatred never ceases through hatred. And so he could pass more of the chant books out to the villagers in the refugee camp. So this is metta in the face of anger, metta in the face of fear. There's enormous strength in this state of mind. So this kind of connection opens up to us. Metta reminds us how much alike we all are. We all want those things in the metta phrases. We want safety and happiness and health and ease in life. All sentient beings want that, human and non-human. So we start looking around and, and we start to feel, okay, we have the capacity for Ramaviharas. We want the same things. We know the near enemies. We know the far enemies. How different are we on a heart level? And as we start to share with other people and hear their stories and listen to how their hearts are moving, we see it's just how our heart would move too in the same situation. And we start to feel, I start to feel, like the same heart has just been poured into all these different vessels. And the vessels also are not that different. Two eyes, nose, mouth, ears, heart, Our vessels are not that different either. Same heart, same human consciousness, same vessel, and we've just had different life experiences along the way. So we have gotten shaped, and our collection of qualities becomes unique, becomes singular. But what it's based on is all the same. Fundamentally, there's no real difference in our makeup. So ego picks out all these apparent differences of gender and age and uh, race and class and ability of intellect and athleticism and so on and makes all these discriminations. And when we're lost in that world of dividing, we forget what we all share because we are basically the same being that's gone through different experiences. So I'm just going to close with this um, lovely poem from Rumi's teacher. Not much is known of Rumi's teacher. His name is Shams. He came from a town called Tabriz. But this poem is attributed to him. I, you, he, she, we. In the garden of mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. Let's just sit with that for a minute. I, you, he, she, we. In the garden of love and compassion... These are not true distinctions.
So thank you for your attention. We have about 30 minutes for walking meditation. Then we'll have our last uh, sitting with chanting of the sutta.